The reading this morning for our passage comes from Colossians chapter 3. Listen. The Apostle Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Let's pray. Father, we hear this commandment from your word to rightly put to death the sin that remains. We hear you say to us that we must put them all away. And yet we come here this morning recognizing, Father, that there's still so much of the old man and the old nature alive in us. We want this morning, Father, to hear these teachings and by your grace through your Spirit, act upon them. We want daily to mortify the flesh with its passions and desires that we might be the holy people that we are right now in Christ. Father, we know that you must do this great work in us and by your grace enable us to walk in it. And so be patient with us. Speak to us this morning. Help us, Father, to be the people that we already are in Christ, already dead to our sin, already raised with him, already hidden with him. We ask this with a sense of desperation, Father, knowing that there's still so much sin to be mortified. Mortify it to your glory this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you don't have your Bible open, please do so. Colossians chapter 3. The title of the sermon is Mortification. It is an older term but I think appropriate for us in the context of this passage. It is not often that living in a culture of death that you will hear a pastor from the Word of God telling you of your responsibility to kill. We spend so much of our time rightly fighting for life, for the life of the soul, for the life of the unborn, for the life of marriages and the life of children. And then we come across a passage like this where the Word of God says, put to death, kill, mortify. We find it strange and maybe we even struggle with it. But listen, my beloved, if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to be sanctified as the Apostle Paul is calling and commanding us to here in this chapter, then you must be about the business of mortification. You must be someone who actively and willfully kills off the old you that is still there. The Apostle Paul last week made this glorious call in verses 1 to 4 to sanctification. And he's based this upon the first two chapters where he's magnified the glorification of Jesus Christ, the preeminent one. And he said, and this is who you are in him. As a result of the work of Christ, you are now whole. You are now complete. He went so far as to say that you have past tense died with Christ that you have past tense been raised with Christ, that you right now are hidden with Christ in God. At this very moment, this is your current present standing if you know Christ as Lord and Savior. And therefore, he says, in light of this, he said, seek the things that are above. 
set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are here on earth. Because Paul knows what the Bible teaches from cover to cover, that your passions, the things that you seek for, your thoughts, the things that you set your mind on, will determine how you live your day-to-day life. Paul knows that. The Scriptures teach that. And so the apostle, after two glorious chapters, Colossians 1 and Colossians 2, he comes down off the Christ-exalting, soul-saving mountaintop, and he enters into the valley of sin. And he says, let's get practical. Let's get dirty. Let's get really messy here and what we have to deal with. And he begins to tell us about the sin that remains, that must die. And it must die. He reveals the practical measures that we are to engage in to what? To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He tells us that if we are to seek and set our minds on the things above, if we're going to have Christ as our ultimate desire and our thoughts are going to be kingdom thoughts and kingdom teachings and kingdom principles, then Paul says you must mortify yourself. You must kill yourself. A heavenly orientation involves and requires the daily putting to death of you. So this morning, I want, to, I want to hear the apostle teach this. I want you to respond to it with a, with a hearty amen that is not just a response to what is being said, but today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life, you will say, I will be about the business of killing my old self. I want to do that by looking at four things. One, who to mortify. You say, well, you already told us that. I'll tell you again. Number two, what to mortify. Number three, why mortify. And number four, how to mortify. Who are we supposed to mortify? What specifically are we supposed to mortify? Why are we supposed to engage in the mortification process? And and how do we do it? How do we do it? Point number one, who to mortify. Look at verse five. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He says, you want to grow in holiness? you want to be the people that you already are in Christ and have that lived out in your daily life, then you must be putting to death the old self. Now, if you've been here for the last few weeks and you've been paying attention, I pray you have, you ought to have a question for me right now. You ought to say, Pastor, you taught clearly last week in verse 3 that we have died in Christ. And you even emphasized that's past tense. And you taught a few weeks ago in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, that we have died to the elemental spirits of the world. And you also emphasize there that is past tense. How is it now, Pastor, that you are telling us that we need to put to death ourselves if we have, in fact, already died? We are a thinking people, and we say there is a, a contradiction here, or it appears to be so. Am I saying to you that you're not really dead in your sins? I am not. Am I saying to you that you need to put to death the sins that remain in order to be saved? I am not because the Bible does not teach that. So what are we saying here? Let's start with the foundation. If you are in Christ, God, by his sovereign power, has made you alive, which means he killed the old you. The old you entered the grave with Christ. It entered into his baptism. The new you was raised in Christ. And so you are now alive. You are a new creature. You've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we saw last week, that new you is hidden with Christ in God. Untouchable. Salvation is secure. So, what is there to kill? If you're already dead, what is there to put to death? The body of flesh. Look at verse 5 again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The HCSB renders it a little better. Put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. 
It literally in the Greek says, put to death the members of your earthly nature. Put to death the, the hands and the arms and the legs and the feet and the mouth that continue to spew out the sin that comes from the wickedness of the heart. Now, the church has struggled for centuries, not only early but in the monastic movement, of dealing with this physically. And people have physically maimed themselves in trying to put to death the members of their bodies. The religious asceticism of the Judaizers smacked of this interpretation. It is the killing of the deeds of the body. It is a figure of speech. And that is for you and me and all saved by grace to daily put to death any sinful desires, any sinful thoughts that remain in us, the parts of you that still hate the fact that you have been dethroned and Christ reigns in your heart. The parts of you that say, no, I will not submit to the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in me. Paul said it well in Romans chapter 8. He said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, then you are debtors, but not to the flesh. Listen, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the flesh you put to death the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live. So Christian living is actively and intentionally and daily putting to death the old you, the fleshly you, the worldly you, the deeds of the flesh. Not to make yourself alive, but because you are already alive in Christ. I loved how Rich Mullins, the Christian artist, put it. He said, we are simply trying to catch up with the work the Holy Spirit has already done. We're just trying to catch up with what he's done. You're already whole. You're already complete. You're already glorified in Christ. So just work into that. Not to save yourself, but because you're already saved. What God has already done for you through Christ, through the cross, he says now, work it out day after day after day. So this day, you will be more holy than you were yesterday. And 10 years from now, by God's grace, if you continue to put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will be more holy then than you are now. And how glorious, if on your deathbed, you can look back at your life in Christ and say, wow, how much work God has done in me. This should be our trajectory and should be our hope in Christ. Daily bringing the desires and the thoughts and the actions of the flesh in line with who you now really are by putting those things to death. You're not a Christian very long, my friends, and you know this. You realize that the whole battle between good and evil rages in your own heart. It doesn't take long before you realize that coming to a saving grace in Christ does not mean that all the sin is now gone and you live a perfectly holy life now. That is heresy. What you realize is that the spirit that now dwells in you is battling to put to death the worldly you, the earthly you that still remains. When God imparted his Holy Spirit to you, your heart and your life became the battleground. The front lines are on the inside. That's why the Apostle Paul describes his situation as a saved believer in Romans chapter 7, which is so important for us to hear. This is not before he came to a saving grace. He says, I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, he says, this I keep on doing. You can hear the emphasis and the strain of the battle. And then he said in verse 21, so I find this law in me, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my member. 
And Paul says, my mind has been renewed in Christ, but that sin still in my members, we're at war. And so the battle here is on the inside. And so Paul, Paul is saying, who are you to kill? Who are you to murder? Who are you to battle? It's you. It's the old you. It's the fleshly you. Put it to death day after day after day. In other words, mortify everything that is not in submission to God. Everything. You want some examples? I don't even have to make these up. The Apostle Paul gives them. Verse 5 and verse 8. Look at point number 2. Point number 2, what are we to mortify? Paul gives us two lists. They're sample lists. They're not comprehensive by any means. These are sample lists of sin that we are to engage in the killing process of. In verse 5, the apostle talks about an action and then goes back to the motive. In verse 8, he starts with the motive of the heart and he goes to the behavior. In both lists, what I want you to see, for time purposes, I, 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 didn't, I don't have the time to unpack every word. I tried that and had to rewrite the sermon on Thursday, lest we be here for three hours. I want you to see the progression of the list. Something's happening that ties all these together, and you'll see that by God's grace if, I, if I'm at all clear. He wants us to do battle, and he wants us to do battle at the roots, right? If we're going to fight these weeds in our heart, then we can't come along with a weed whacker and just cut off the top. You've done that before, and you were very thankful. You went out in your backyard, you cut it down with the weed whacker, and you said, oh, it looks so nice, and a week later, they're all back. You said, well, what happened? You didn't pull the roots. Why didn't you pull the roots? Because root pulling is hard work. That's really hard work. Paul needs us to do the hard work of getting down deep, getting to the root of our sin, because that's where the mortification will take place. You whack the top, it'll come right back. You pull out the root, and you can kill the sin. So let's have a look at these lists briefly, and we will do that. We want to get out of the generalities. He said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We want to get down to the front lines. We want to see where the guns are being fired, where the bullets are coming, so that we can actually fight at the right place. Verse 5 again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The first list deals with the expressed sin of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, the two lists deal with Sexual immorality and anger, and, and they're the two sins that have plagued mankind from the beginning. The word you know in the Greek is pornea. You know that because that's where we get our word pornography. It comes from a word, though, it's perneo, and that means to sell off. And so our sexual immorality is the selling off or surrendering of our purity, of our holiness to God. In the broadest sense, it is any kind of forbidden sexual activity in word in thought, and in action, and it includes all those. My beloved, even though we live in, in the midst of the sexual revolution, where there's great pressure upon your life and your family and the life of the church to relax upon God's laws, to, to not be so puritanical in our understanding of husband and wife and sexual intimacy in the confines of a covenant marriage, you need to know this, God's perspective on it has not changed. In the Old Testament, pornea was capitally punished. It was a punishable crime by death. That means that adultery, homosexuality, pornography of any kind, fornication, bestiality, transgender, were all hated by God and punished accordingly. And so even though we live 
in the midst of a culture that is changing the values. God's values have not changed on it. So be very, very careful in thinking that somehow God no longer thinks as he used to. But this evil behavior was not born in a vacuum. Look at the verse again. Paul says, put to death sexual immorality, and the next word is impurity. It literally means unclean. And these are the unclean thoughts that give birth to the sexual morality. Was it not Christ who said in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, same order of operation, theft, murder, adultery. Paul's making a connection that we need to make. Listen. This was really important for me this week. He said, if you control your thinking, you control your body. You control your thinking, you control your body. Last week, what did he say? He said, set your minds on the things that are above. Why? If your minds are set on the things above, you'll have control of your thoughts. And if you have control of your thoughts, you'll control your body. That's why we here are constantly calling one another back to the Word of God. Hear God speak to you. Have his thoughts be your thoughts. Have brothers and sisters come around you and breathe the thoughts of God into you that you might think as he thinks, that you might behave as he wants you to behave. My beloved, you have all stumbled, or most of you in this area. Your thoughts have not been pure. And when you have allowed your thoughts to be lustful, when you have allowed your eyes to gaze upon pornographic images or visions in movies that are hateful to Christ, when the airways which are dominated, the language, the music, the contemporary literature, when they are unclean and that fortifies your thoughts, your thoughts will be unclean and it will lead to, it will lead to uh, sexual immorality as Paul talks about here. So our sexual immorality comes from impure thoughts. Look at the next step though. Our impure thoughts come from verse 5, our passions, pathos, and our evil desires. That word in the Greek is epithumia. It is an inordinate desire. Something that goes beyond a normal desire or normal passion. Depraved, longing for that which is forbidden. And now, now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? I mean, we talk about the behavior, sexual morality. We talk about the thought process. And now we're talking about the desires in the heart. We're actually getting down to a place where we can do some really good battle here. Near the roots, but not there yet. Where all those passions and evil desires that are contrary to the law of God and contrary to your new identity, can be fought. Paul said, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so outside of Christ, outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, Everyone is controlled by their passions. That's why everybody says, do what your heart desires. Do what you want to do most. And that makes sense outside of Christ. Because the heart outside of Christ, we know, is, as Jeremiah said, desperately wicked above all else. Who can understand it? And if the heart's wicked, then the desires are wicked. And if the desires are wicked, they will lead to wicked thoughts. And if the thoughts are wicked, immorality, physical sin will follow. Let's go one step deeper, though, because we're going to hit bottom here. We have the action, we have the thoughts, we have the desires of the heart. Verse 5 again, put to death sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And now we have the foundation. We've hit the bottom where we need to do the fighting. The end of this list tells us everything behind the passions and everything behind the evil thoughts and everything behind the sexual immorality. 
covetousness, which is idolatry. What is covetousness? What does it mean to covet? It means to desire something that you do not have. In the context of this passage, it means to desire, to desire that which God forbids, to desire that which you ought not have. God designed, by His wisdom, sexual intimacy to be known and enjoyed in the context, listen, of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. All sexual intimacy outside of the covenant marriage, according to the Word of God, is forbidden, regardless of what the culture says. That means for you to lust after a member of the opposite sex, for you to engage in adultery or fornication, for you to advocate positions of homosexuality or transgender in the church, for you to allow your eyes to gaze upon pornographic images is hateful to God. To be sexually intimate in any way with anyone outside of your spouse in covenant marriage is strictly forbidden by God. And it's forbidden by God because He loves us. All the sexual perversions that we see today are ruining the culture. They destroy His good creation. They destroy the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And they come in and they fracture homes. And what's left? Divorce, disease, hatred, animosity, children who are no longer raised in a home with a mother and a father. And it's ruinous. And we see it today. James was right. He said, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And then Paul says this coveting is idolatry. That's the most profound statement because now we're at the bottom. Now we're where we need to be. Idolatry is the bottom because idolatry is underneath every single sin. That's why this is a sampler list. He doesn't need to list all of them because we have idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of another God. It is submitting to someone or something, usually you, if not always you, other than the one true living God as revealed in the Bible. All sin, sexual and otherwise, can be traced back to this single, hideous, life-wrecking root. At every moment of every day, without exception, you are either worshiping God or you're worshiping yourself. Every moment of every day. When you worship God and you hear God tell you through His Son, Jesus Christ, If you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart, do not lust. And you say, yes, Lord, I will not. And you fight against that. You battle it. That is worshiping God. If you hear God say to you, do not lust, and you say, but it's pleasing to me when I lust. You hear God say to you, do not commit adultery, and you say, but it's pleasing to me when I commit adultery. You are then worshiping yourself. And instead of worshiping God, When you then covet, which is forbidden, the passions will be kindled, the thoughts will arise, and what will you do? You will lust, and you'll act upon it. You will submit to your evil desires, your impure thoughts, and your sexual immorality instead of what? Instead of putting them to death. That's what Paul is saying here. Put them to death, and you say, no, I will not. Every sin is traced to the root of idolatry. Do you see the chain? Here it is. When we worship ourselves, instead of worshiping God, then we covet that which God has forbidden. 
And when we covet that which God has forbidden in our own self-worship, then the passions that are in our heart will be kindled up. They will give rise to thoughts that we ought not have, and they will lead to behavior that we ought not do. Sin consummated then leads to death. This is why idolatry, it is the most wicked of sins. It is the one sin that in the New Testament, we talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what is that? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the rejection of the testimony of the Spirit to Christ. So if you reject the Holy Spirit, you reject Christ. If you reject Christ, you have an idol. And it's that idol you're bowing down to that will lead to eternal death. It's why the first commandment is what? What is the very first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3? You shall have no other gods but me, God said. That's you. That's me. The God that we always want to put in place is ourself. I mean, we attach idols. We say, oh, I have, my, my idol is, is popularity or my idol is money. Your idol's you. You're the idol. When God said, you shall have no other gods before me, he's talking to you. He's saying, stop stealing my glory. Stop worshiping yourself instead of me. Stop acting as though you're God instead of the creation. In verse 8, another progression, another list, same ending. Look at verse 8. He said, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put them away carries the same weight as put them to death. He's saying, Paul's saying, I'm talking about a complete and total eradication. Every word, thought, and action of sin. Work on it. Battle it. Put it away. This list I'm going to condense here, the progression. Look again with me. This time it starts with the heart and moves out. The anger. It comes from a word that literally means to swell up. That smoldering flame in your heart of anger. Most of you know it well. I know I do. That old nature that as soon as it gets a little bit of oxygen... You say, what is that oxygen? It's that person that cuts you off and now you want to kill, right? I mean, they just cut you off and you want to kill them. You should find that odd. It's that person who slandered you, that coworker who's bad-mathing you, and now you want to get them fired. It's that child who disobeys you and anger swells up. The anger doesn't stay there, though. It gives way. Look at the next word. The anger gives way to wrath. Wrath is the blazing fire. It is that inordinate outburst of passion. And the wrath doesn't stay there. Look at it gives forth the means of expression. It goes to malice. Malice literally means the wicked disposition of the mind. That's your thinking. And so now you're given way to the thinking process of hatred. And the end is what? Slander, blasphemy, literally in the Greek, where you will use abusive language towards others. And the last part, obscene talk from your mouth. Filthy. Foul language. This is the result here of the anger. So we see the passion is the anger and the wrath. It gives way to the thoughts of malice that in turn give way to slander and obscene talk. Now you've heard God say to you, be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. You know that's what his word says. That's what he's commanded. My beloved, if you are worshiping yourself and not the living God, then you will covet the anger you will covet the malice. You will want to open your mouth and you will want to tell your friend what they need to hear or what you think they need to hear. So instead of killing the anger and subduing the wrath 
instead of taking captive the malice that wants you to go into destructive action, you will blasphemy your friends. You will slander them. You will allow foul and filthy language to come out of your mouth. If you find out that a friend has done you harm, maybe they have slandered you, and you are going to worship yourself instead of worship God, you're going to call them up with hate in your heart, and you will say, you are a stubborn, disrespectful, cotton-picking ninny-muggins, and you will say that to them with all the anger that it has. And what have you just done? You just slandered God. You say, well, how did I slander God? I called my friend who slandered me. Remember, it's God who made that stubborn, disrespectful, cotton-picking ninny-muggins in His image. Did He not? He did. So when you slander your friend who God made, when you slander your friend with filthy language, you are slandering your Creator. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said this in Matthew chapter 5. He said, I say to you, this seems like an extreme statement unless you realize that you slander a man, you slander God. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, that is slanderous, will be liable to the fires of hell. How do we get there? Because it is hateful to God. It is hateful to the Creator. A refusal to submit to God as God in His teachings that we might worship ourselves as idols is a refusal to mortify sin. It's the very opposite of what Christ is teaching here. So we've seen the who to mortify, that's you. We've seen the what to mortify. That's every sinful thought, every sinful desire, every sinful action in your life that is contrary to the character and nature of our living God. Are you still with me? Okay. Why? Why should we? You say, well, the Bible says. Well, of course, but why? Why does the Bible teach us this? If, Pastor, if, if I'm already dead and I'm already raised and I'm already hidden with Christ, can't I just coast through the rest of my life? Because you said when he appears, I will appear with him in glory. Can't I just settle down and take it easy? The answer is no, and here's why. Look at verses 6, 7, and the beginning of 8. Why mortify the flesh? Paul gives us two highly compelling reasons. Verse 6, on account of these, on account of what? These sins. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Verse 7, in these, these sins, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Put them all away. So he gives us two reasons. One, the wrath of God is coming, so put them away. Reason number two, you used to live in them, you don't any longer, you're a new creature, born again, put them away. Reason number one, plainly stated, and I believe easily understood, on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. Some translations, not the earliest in the Greek, maybe your translation has this, it says, on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. And I think, although that's not there, I think that is the right understanding of it. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to believers. Believers do not experience the wrath of God. Christ has experienced the wrath of God. So what is he saying here? Why does he say to believers, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming? Is that saying, if you don't stop sinning, that the wrath is going to come upon you? If this is true, if God's going to punish every single sin, Paul's saying, why? In your right mind as a believer saved by grace, would you continue in the life that you used to live? Why? 
This doesn't make any sense. Why continue to rebel in light of the fact that you know that God's going to pour his wrath out upon people who are not saved? Why live like them? Paul recognizes that they're saved by grace. He wants them to understand and know fully that it's because of these sins that we once walked in that Christ died, that the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus that we might live. It's these sinful passions and thoughts and actions that required our sinless Savior to receive the full wrath of God upon the cross. And so I believe here that Paul is saying, look upon the crucified Christ. Cast your eyes upon him and then ask yourself, how can I continue in this? You cannot. You cannot, my beloved, for a moment meditate upon your crucified Savior and say, I'm going to willfully and intentionally live in these sins upon which the wrath of God was poured out upon his body. I was listening to a song with my son the other day in the car and it was talking about Christ upon the cross and when he bowed his head and he took his last breath and I looked at him and I said, does that not make you weep? How can it not? We can't continue in sin knowing that Christ suffered in our place. We can't participate in it knowing that God punished him instead of us. There's another reason he gives in verse 7, Paul says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you, now you must put them away. Notice the identification of your life before Christ. Notice this. This is incredible. We walked in them, the sins. We lived in them, the sins. In other words, before you were saved, my beloved, you were not a good person who occasionally sinned. You were dead in your sins. You walked in them. You lived in them. You practiced them. You loved them. And the whole Bible teaches us that. Ephesians chapter 2, I don't think it gets any better than this. Paul said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. He said, in the passions of your flesh, listen to this, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, verse 4, Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then, of course, you know this. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, present tense, that's where you are. So your formal life is nothing but rebellion, nothing but sin, nothing but hatred against God. But now in Christ, you are alive, you're new, you're holy, you're raised. What are you doing with the old stuff? Why are you playing with sin? Why do you feed the passions? Why do you allow those thoughts to be? Why? Paul's saying, why are you doing this? That's not you anymore. It's like the millionaire who lives as though he's still in poverty. It's the patient cured of cancer who remains in the hospital. It's the prisoner who has served their sentence but wants to stay in jail. That's not you. That's not you. You're no longer defined by your sin. You're defined by Christ. Your identity is not a sinner. It is a sinner saved by grace. You are in Christ now. When I graduated from high school, I went away to college, and I had a handful of my friends stay here. They attended the community college, and they would, uh, they would often spend their time that following year hanging out at the high school in the afternoons. It wasn't right. 
It was weird. They were rightly mocked for not graduating and moving on. My beloved, when you were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you graduated from the power of sin and death. It's the wrong place to be. God made you rich. He cured you of your disease, and he set you free from the power of sin and death, and he brought you into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of holiness, the kingdom of light. Get out of the darkness. Stop dwelling there. Stop meditating there. It no longer fits you. It dishonors your new life. It dishonors the work of Christ. Remember, Christ did not just die on the cross to forgive you of your sins. He died to impart his righteousness to you as well. And if you do not live in that righteousness by putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you dishonor the gift and you dishonor the gift giver who is Christ. So we've seen the who, the what, and the why, but I got to tell you now the how. I mean, all this is glorious, but we got to have some tools. And I'm just going to give you two for the sake of time, and they're in the passage. What do we do? We're, we're at war. We're at war with ourselves. We've been called and commanded by God to kill the earthly side in us and to put it away completely. What two ways does Paul give us here? He says, I want you to engage in starvation, and this is not a contradiction, and satisfaction. I want you to starve and be satisfied at the exact same time. Verse 5, look, he said, put them to death. Verse 8, put them all away. Literally, kill them and remove yourself from them. All right? This is the active, intentional, offensive act of starvation. Starvation. It is a war now of attrition. You want to deny the members of your body the evil passions, the lustful thoughts. You want to deny them any fuel, any food that will enable them to rise up and engage in sinful behavior. In order to win them over, you must go again to the root. Remember, we talked about idolatry and covetousness, passion, thoughts, and action. So you're going to target here in this act of starvation, you're going to starve those passions and you're going to starve those thoughts because you don't want them to be aroused. It just takes that, that anger that leads to malice is this, that little fire, that little oxygen. And we want, we want to starve it. And that means this. If you struggle, if you worship yourself, and therefore you have the, an idol of pride in your life because you worship yourself, you don't want to feed that by thinking about all your past successes. Right? Don't lie in your bed thinking, man, I really did that well. Oh. Those are the days I was so good at that. Don't do that. Starve that thought. It means that if pride is your idol, you will not surround yourself with people who tell you how good you are. And you will not surround yourself with people who are so patient that they listen to you tell them how good you are. If you struggle with the idol of lust or sexual immorality, as so many men in the church do, then you will not feed it by watching things that you ought not watch. And I'm not just talking about pornography online. I'm talking about movies, television programs, magazines, anything that will spur on those passions that will lead to the thoughts, that will lead to the action you put to death. Take it away. Take it out. My son, my youngest son, he gets um, a couple magazines, Popular Mechanics and a Handyman. And before we give it to him, we go through it because there are advertisements. Rip that out. Rip that out. Say, well, that... It's so puritanical. I mean, that's so antiquated. No, it's not. I don't want to feed his mind with an image that will raise a passion that will cause him to sin. And so what do we do? We remove it from him. 
Real simple. Real simple. If you struggle with coveting, do not meditate on what your neighbor has. Don't look at their car or their house or their job or their wife and the children and go, oh, I wish I had that. Don't look. Don't submit yourself to that thought process. If you struggle with consumerism, listen, ladies, I love you. Do not go window shopping. I mean, honestly, if you struggle with materialism, and you, why are you out strolling the streets looking in the windows? Oh, I should get that, or I should get that. Starve it. Cut it off. If you struggle with work, don't deny yourself a Sabbath. If you struggle with slothfulness, do not deny yourself work. You get the point. Starve it. Starve the urges. Starve the passions. Starve the desires. And this is not religious asceticism. This is not what the Judaizers were teaching in Colossae. This is what the Bible says. It says, if you know that you're prone to this passion being aroused or this thought being cultivated, go in, cut it off, and deny yourself of it. All right, that's why I don't hang out and see candy shops. Just don't do it. It's all bad for me. All right. This is, in so many ways, when Christ said, you are to daily take up your cross and follow me, this is it. This is the putting to death of you. Right? This is you crucifying your passions and your desires daily, actively, willfully, and intelligently. So on the one hand, Paul says, put them to death by starving them. And on the other hand, even more powerful, he says, be satisfied. Be satisfied. Both are necessary, by the way. You've got to starve and you've got to satisfy. But I will say this. It's your satisfaction in God through Jesus Christ that gives you the power to starve the idol. You gotta love Christ most if you're gonna have the power to say, I'm not gonna feed that passion, I'm not gonna feed that thought. And that's why this one I think is even better. Look at verse five again. It is from the passage. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what was underneath it all? Covetousness, which leads to idolatry. Desiring what you do not have because you are not satisfied. Desiring what you are forbidden to have because you are not satisfied. What if, my beloved, one day, one day, what if right now we could take the fact that in the heavenly realm we'll be so satisfied in God we will not covet anything? What if we can take that eternal reality and make that part of our life now? What if you didn't covet? What if you didn't covet at all? I mean, nothing. If someone says to you, how are you today? You say, I am completely satisfied. And they say, what do you mean? I mean, I am completely satisfied. I covet nothing. But what would that, what would that do for your battle against sin? What power would there be in the temptation to arouse the passion? What thought could come into your mind that would enable you to sin? What act could you do engaging in sin when you're already completely satisfied in God and in God you have everything because you have Christ? A love and a joy and a grace so deep and so powerful that you can live day in and day out truly satisfied in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And because of that, you do not covet. This is the trajectory that Paul wants us on you will be free then from the temptations of the earthly nature. Without, without coveting, the temptations become powerless. Without coveting, 
You can't commit adultery. You can't look at porn because you have such intimacy with God through Christ. Your love is so satisfied in Him that you cannot. You can't even get angry if you do not covet because your anger has been saturated in the cross, right? The anger that you rightly deserve because your sin Christ bore. How can you be angry? God gave you compassion. God gave you mercy. God gave you love. You can't be angry. The picture here is a soul so satisfied in Christ that it cannot covet. And if it cannot covet, then all those passions and all those thoughts that lead to sin cannot be aroused. So how do we overcome covetousness? The passage again, verse 8, covetousness is idolatry. So what kills the coveting heart? Better, who kills the coveting heart? It is right worship in God. At the bottom of this entire sermon, at the end of this entire passage, I want you to hear it's right worship of the living God that kills the covetousness, which kills the passion, which kills the thought, which kills the sin, and what are you doing? You're putting it to death. You're mortifying it, just as Paul has commanded you to do. Because you've heard this, you said, oh my goodness, the thought of me not ever having a lustful thought again, not possible, pastor. I mean, anger lives within me, and I am anger, and I got malice, and I like to pour it out with my tongue. And you heard all these, there's, I can't even approach this without feeling like I'm going to fail. And you will fail unless you approach the throne, because it's there where the right worship of the living God happens. And in His presence, when you rightly worship the one who deserves to be worshipped, when you rightly worship the one who is most glorious, then in his, in knowing him, in experiencing the love that comes by the grace of Christ through the cross, in knowing that you have been made a son or daughter of this most glorious one, you will be satisfied. And in that satisfaction, you will not covet and therefore not desire to sin. When you see how good he really is, when you see how good his laws and his commandments are, when you see his watch care over you, every moment of every day, how much he really loves you, you will not desire the things of this earth. When you see, my beloved, how compassionate and how giving your Father is. When you see that he has, Ephesians 1-3, blessed you in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, you lack nothing. Oh, I'd love for us to leave this service with all of us saying, I lack nothing. And we eat together lacking nothing. And we have our meeting together lacking nothing. And we go into this week that in his divine power, 2 Peter 1.3, that he has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know these things and you'll be satisfied. When you see and understand the sacrifice that Christ made to take the wrath of God that you want to exercise on his creation, and that he did this, that you might have eternal life, you'll be satisfied. Your coveting will decrease, and your satisfaction in Christ will increase, because you will realize, in fact, right now, you are complete in him, and that will become more and more real to you. Simply put, the more satisfied you are in God, the more satisfied you are in God, the more holy you will live each and every day the more you will put to death the deeds of the flesh, the more you will put away that which God hates, and the more you will do what Paul said for us to do last week, 
to seek the things that are above, to set your mind on the things that are above. Why? Because you'll want to. You will want to. You'll want to put to death what is earthly in you. You'll want to put away what God hates. These will be now desires in your new nature that compel you, that give you the right desires and the right thoughts to live holy lives. You won't want to live according to the list of verse 5 or the sins in verse 8. Those are horrible lists. You don't want them defining you. You want to live, as Paul describes in Ephesians 5, listen to this, filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What a life that would be. What a life if that were our church. Say, we're in Ephesians 5, 18 to 21 church because we're satisfied in Christ. We want to change the world? Let them see that. Singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Imagine that. What are you singing for? Because you're satisfied in Christ. Why are you singing to one another? Because we're all satisfied in Christ. We worship Him and we worship Him alone. My beloved, this is the life. This is the life you've already been raised into. This is who you are in Christ. You are dead. You have been made alive. You are hidden with Christ in God. So Paul says, in, in love and with authority, work it out. Get busy. Get busy living the life that you are in Christ right now. Get busy. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that this teaching, if to save ourselves, would be a wicked teaching. If the Apostle Paul was advocating that we engage in the mortification of sin, if we put to death what is earthly in us so that we can be saved, every one of us would know that we cannot be saved. But by your grace and mercy, you call us to holiness because you've already made us holy. You call us to live as though we are raised because we are already raised with Christ. You call us to be a people that are so enamored with your Son, so captivated by His grace and mercy, worshiping Him every moment of every day, that we cannot turn to the idol of ourselves, that our, those evil passions and those wicked thoughts that lead to the sins are, are truly destroyed before your throne. Father, gather us today, please. Gather us before the cross and let each of us gaze upon a crucified, risen Savior. And in seeing that, Father, I pray you would kindle upon, in our hearts not those evil passions or those wicked thoughts, but kindle in us, Lord, that deep desire to have you and to know you and to love you every moment of every day with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. Do that, Father, please. Bring us all the way in and show us yourself as you really are. It is sufficient. It will satisfy, and it will satisfy to the depth of our bones, Lord, that we will not find ourselves coveting, idolatrous, with impure thoughts. Father, we ask that you would do this great work, not only to bless us, your people, which you love to do, but we ask you above all else to do this for your own glory, so that your people here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, here in San Jose, will be the brilliant, holy light set apart for your glory. Do it for Christ's sake. Do it for the Holy Spirit's sake that you be magnified in it all. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.